Glad y'all are here on a holiday. That's pretty cool. You never know on a holiday what kind of attendance you're going to have. And I, um, you know, it kind of trickles in, especially not having Bible study beforehand. It's kind of hard to anticipate, but it's pretty cool to see a full bunch here. I'm thankful that y'all are not resting from worship. Uh, I do encourage you this weekend as you're going about your weekend to just be mindful of those families uh, that have lost a loved one uh, who's serving. That's, that's what Memorial Day is. It's not necessarily a time, not really a time to thank someone who's served, who's alive. Um, that's not a bad thing to ever do, but it's a holiday. This holiday specifically is to be mindful of and to uh, be thankful for those who uh, gave their lives in defense of our country. And um, I want to begin this morning praying for those families. Uh, some of you may know those families. Some of you may know some people that were lost in harm, serving in harm's way. I want to pray for a church, a local church this morning, and something I'd like to incorporate into Sunday mornings is a time praying for some part of the world, some work, some people group that um, is uh, in, in light of where we spent these last two Sundays. We pray locally. Let's pray globally every week when we gather. So this morning we're going to be praying for refugees in Uganda. And um, uh, just a little bit, bit, a little background there. That, and I just this came right off the IMB website. There's a prayer section of the IMB page there with fresh updates about things that we can be praying for as a people collectively or individually or as families. Uh, specifically, we're going to be praying for the people in the Tika zone, is what it's called, in the Rhino Camp Refugee Settlement. Uh, there's a church that planted a church there. Hope Baptist Church planted a church in this zone and have had a number of people that are, are joining, connecting to this church already. So we're going to pray for that church leadership and pray for the work there, um, pray for the refugees to find the Lord. So let's pray. God, this morning, uh, just a few things to bring before you. First of all, we want to thank you for uh, the ultimate sacrifice that some have paid in defense of our country. And uh, we are thankful that we have a great place to live in the United States. And uh, just thankful for those who, um, who gave all in the service of our country and uh, probably for very, very little pay, very little recognition, um, very little fanfare. Lord, I pray that their families this weekend will be especially blessed. Lord, I pray that uh, even strategically uh, in terms of the gospel, Lord, I pray that a family that may even have had a recent loss may come to know you through their loss of a loved one. Uh, we're thankful uh, that we have a Lord that gave his life for his friends and showed us what love looks like. And Lord, we pray that that would be something that would that you would use is even in the grief of a loss of a loved one who served, uh, that you would draw people to you. Lord, this morning I also want to pray for another church in our community, for Chris Myers, the pastor of Commerce Baptist Church. I want to pray for Chris. Uh, Lord, I want to pray for his worship. I pray that you would guard his heart in Christ Jesus, that he would be fueled by worship as he's going about pastoring uh, Commerce Baptist Church. Um, Lord, we pray that he would, um, that his marriage would be home base for worship, that he would be blessed in the way he's walking with his family and in his marriage, Lord, that that would be a, a place where the gospel is put on display. I pray that his studies are fueling that first, and then there's an overflow to the pulpit, uh, an overflow to his, his pastoral ministry, shepherding ministry. Uh, Lord, just uh, pray that you would bless him and bless um, the church there in commerce. May your goodness on display in how they move. Lord, we pray that you would uh, ultimately be glorified in and through the ministry there. Lord, this morning, lastly, we want to pray for uh, these refugees in Uganda in this Tika zone. Lord, we just ask you to do a great work there, Lord, to draw people to you, uh, to uh, give them visions and dreams that condition the soil and uh, bathe um, uh, the, pray the people of God, even from this mor morning, too, here in Greenville, Texas, can cultivate the soil through prayer and that good seed will find purchase on ready uh, freshly tilled hearts, Lord, that uh, you would use the ministry of, of uh, Hope Baptist Church and others who may be part of that work there to those, to, for those refugees to draw your people to you, uh, to gather your sheep from the far corners, Lord. We pray that you would do that for your namesake and for your glory. Lord, I, uh, before we continue in sermon, Lord, I just want to pray that you would just bless this season uh, that we're about to enter into as a church in these next six weeks, Lord. I pray that you would just do something crazy, wonderful, um, fitting in our time in this prayer in John 17. Lord, we ask you to do what you do. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to John chapter 17. 
give you a little context, a little explanation of what we're going to do. I feel like I'm super loud back there, too, and I don't want to, I'm going to be shouting later, so it would be really loud. No, I'm just kidding. I don't plan to shout today. I might. Um, this is what we're calling a community series. It's not a series of sermons about the community that we live in so much as it's a series of sermons about us as a church, as a community of faith, the people of God. We like to do this ideally once a year. Uh, we try and uh, do a series, whether it's a couple Sundays or a longer series, in conjunction with our membership renewal. Uh, our membership renewal this year is going to be on June the 30th. So this series will lead right up into and land on June 30th when we have our membership renewal. So uh, we, we didn't, something that's interesting about this series is we didn't look to traditional passages that are really uh, sort of the go-to passages about what the church is and what the church does. We're actually going to a prayer. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in our Bible. It's in John chapter 17. It's a prayer for his disciples present right there at the table. There's 11 of them at the table at this moment. And it's a prayer for those who, will, who would believe and will believe through their word, which is us 2,000 years later. So it's really kind of cool that we're, we have the chance to step into a chapter here that's a living prayer where Christ is praying over his people. Uh, there are going to be three preachers preaching this series. Uh, it makes me think of Rodney Dangerfield's Triple Lindy. If you're familiar with the Triple Lindy, this is going to be a preaching version of the Triple Lindy to have three different guys preaching from John chapter 17. So you can pray for these three frail, feeble guys that Lord will synthesize something that's intelligible from probably one of the most difficult, hard-to-understand prayers in our Bible. It's not linear. This prayer is far from linear. It is uh, super Middle Eastern and super ancient, and we're going to have work to do over these next few weeks. But I think it's going to be valuable work. Together, the, the group of us are believing, along with the other elders, that this will be a season with, uh, that'll be a healthy, helpful season as Christ prays over our church. A living prayer over a people who need Christ and his prayer so, and what he asks for here. So there's a goal, that, a couple of goals that we're leaning into as we unpack this passage. We don't want to go here just as consumers. Hey, we don't want to just go into this chapter and say, okay, show us who we're supposed to be. We want to go, first of all, into this chapter understanding what, what we can learn about the nature of our God. Okay, that's first and foremost. As we're climbing into this prayer, understanding uh, what the Son is asking of the Father, the role of the Spirit as he is thread throughout this prayer. And then there's going to be a byproduct of that. There's going to be an overflow of that that are going to be some really big, wonderful implications about who we are as a people and who we are to be. Okay, so that's what we're going to do in these next few weeks. I'd like to this morning, I'm not sure we're going to do this every time that we preach these next six weeks, but I'd like to read the whole prayer. It, it's, a, it's a chapter long, and as you'll see in a moment, it's not linear. If you read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. It's not a real linear, Western-minded kind of prayer. We like linear stuff, and that's why people like to preach and hear from Paul. Because Paul was conditioned by this Greek and Roman thought that is a lot more linear. This is not linear. It's like a climbing into a bowl of gumbo. Okay, you kind of bump into these parts. And that's what we're going to try and make sense of in the next few weeks. So I'm going to read the whole prayer. And then this morning we're just going to spend some time on the first five verses. So just read along with me or just follow along with me as I read this special Prayer. I think we're in some ways standing on holy ground as we get to listen in to what the Lord prays here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people you gave me, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Whew. Right? I mean, let's, let's be really honest. Like You understand why I'm saying this is the triple indie. If you don't know what the triple indie is, it's probably on YouTube somewhere, but don't watch it right now. Because it'd probably be audio and you'd be embarrassed. But it would be really good. You understand why this is going to be crazy. And I have vitamin water just because I need it in this next few minutes. So you might want to bring vitamin water the next five weeks. Okay, here's the plan. Let me kind of unpack or just give you a bird's eye view of some structure. Some structure would be important. I think it'll kind of help you kind of wrangle how this prayer unfolds. Uh, here's kind of a big picture structure with a few things embedded within it that is actually going to be how we unpack this in the next six weeks. Okay, so it's going to be a guide also into how we're following this the next six weeks. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. That's what we're going to be considering today. He prays for himself asking for glory. Okay, that's the first petition of five. Okay, that's where we're going to be today. In the, in the next uh, few verses, verses 6 through 19, he prays for the 11. Judas has left the table by this point. There are 11 disciples around the table at the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about context in a minute. But he's praying for the 11 in verses 6 through 19. He prays for two things, and these are going to take up two sermons. He prays for the protection of his followers, and he prays for the sanctification of his followers. Okay, And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for future followers. He's praying a living prayer over us. 2,000 years ago on the eve of his cross. And these are the two things sort of embedded within that passage, verses 20 through 26. He prays for oneness for his followers. And he prays that his followers will be with him forever. Okay, so that's our five Sundays. The sixth Sunday, we'll sort of distill out what the Lord's shown us in these five weeks. First, he prays for glory. That's this morning. The second sermon will be a little bit out of order. It's going to be on oneness. Morris Bean will be preaching that next Sunday. And we wanted to bring that oneness sermon early on because it's a thread that runs throughout the prayer. So Morris will be preaching that the next Sunday. Greg Fields will be preaching the second and third petition, uh, the prayer for protection and the prayer for sanctification. And then we'll be landing the plane with the final prayer uh, or the final petition, praying for his followers that they'd be with him forever. Okay? So if that's clear as mud, what I'll do this week is I'll send out an email that'll have that, that outline so you'll kind of know where we're going. Okay, so big picture this morning, we're just going to be considering the first petition where he asks for glory. So let's look closer at our first five verses. I, what I would like to do in these next couple minutes is just sort of get you oriented. Okay, something that you hand somebody a map and you say, hey, give me some directions. You need a moment to get oriented. So I want you to get oriented in these first five verses. And then we're going to draw out three things that are really, really uh, wonderful implications based on what we're seeing from these first five verses. Okay, so just a verse at a time, we'll sort of unpack some stuff. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... 
okay, a little context. I think it's important to understand where this fits in the story. Beginning in John chapter 13, through John chapter 17, the, the Lord and his disciples are at the Lord's Supper. Okay, the, the Lord's Supper accounts in the other Gospels are really small. This is a large section where all these disciples, Judas has left the table by this point, and the Lord's disciples and the Lord are sitting at this table in the context of the Lord's Supper, chapter 13 through 17 of John. He's, he's uh, predicted Judas' betrayal, and Judas has left the table. He's spoken on some important things, like I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Very familiar passage. He's taught on being the true vine. This is all over this supper. I mean, can you imagine being at this meal? <laughs> a living, living sermon unfolding right there over a meal. He promises the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help you make sense of all this stuff. It would take the Holy Spirit to make sense of this prayer. To record, just to simply to record the prayer that we just wrote. Just think about that. This promised Holy Spirit would help them do that. So he'd just spoken the words from chapter 13 through 16, and then at 17. Oh, he's also washed the disciples' nasty feet. Okay, so let's just really kind of climb into the context here and get all the details. He's broken the bread. They've had the cup. All those things have just happened in these last few minutes. And it's in this setting with a table full of a motley crew. I mean, we say this often because I don't think we could, I mean, we're, we're in danger if we forget it. A motley crew is sitting around this table and Jesus is praying over this crew before he goes to the cross. And after this, after he finished his prayer and chapter 18 is where he leaves the table, they leave the table and they go cross the Kidron Valley. 14 years ago, I think Derek and Brad and uh, Lance and I had the opportunity to cross the Kidron Valley from old Jerusalem and then walk up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's, you could almost hit a golf ball uh, through the, you know, over the valley there. It sounds big, it sounds massive, but it's just it's small when you take it in and you actually get to walk the ground. It's this point or after this where he crosses the Kidron Valley, goes up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed privately at that point and then is arrested and then crucified the next day. Okay, that's our context. All right, so let's get into his prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. All right, throughout the book of John, there's this mention of an hour. Okay, leading up into this point, Jesus says over and over and over again in the book of John, my hour's not here. It even starts as early as when Mary approaches him to change the water to wine. You know, they run out of wine at the wedding, wedding at Cana. It's early on in the book of John. He says, my hour's not here, woman. You remember that moment? And from throughout, there's a thread through the rest of the book of John where he says, my hour's not here yet. My hour's coming, but my hour's not here. But now he says, the hour is here. And the hour that he's speaking of is the hour of his cross. 33 years worth of life, three years worth of ministry have been driving to this hour and this moment, building and waiting for this really, really potent hour. Now we're speaking figuratively because we're talking about 48 hours, 24 hours. This time is now here. He prays over his people in this context. And here's his first request for glory. There's really two that we're going to look at this morning. And here's his first request for glory. Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. Okay, and he includes a sense. Okay, one way to kind of read it to make sense of it would be glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you because. That's a great way to read that word sense. Because, and here's the because. Because authority has been given to me, the Son, over all mankind. To give eternal life, that's the second part of it. And here's the third part. To those you have given him or have been given him by the Father. Okay? His first request for glory is glorify the Son so the Son may glorify the Father because authority has been given the Son over all mankind, over all flesh, to give eternal life to those who have been given to him. Okay? Something that grates, that really I think rates glory here, to sort of summarize this, is for the Father and Son. What rates glory, if you want to kind of distill those, uh, those things that, that unfold there that I realize are kind of complicated, here's the point. What rates glory for Father and Son is the saving of lost sheep. Okay, that's the synthesis of what's being said here. Since authority has been given over all mankind to give eternal life to those who've been given to him, 
God the Father and Son are glorified in the saving of lost sheep, in the saving of lost souls, in the saving of people. Okay, let's go to verse 3. Verse 3 serves as kind of a parenthesis a little bit in this, in this passage. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This passage is a nice place to go if you're trying to make sense of what does it mean to be saved and how do I follow Christ and what is this salvation message. This is a nice little synthesis in that. or It kind of comes together in this one verse because this is what it means to be saved. This is salvation to come into a relationship with a living being. Okay, it's not praying a prayer. It's not doing some works. Although it might begin with a prayer as you're praying, Lord, save me from my sins. I'm making an appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. What's actually happening there is you're connecting to a being. That's salvation. This mystic union between a person, a child even, an adult, anyone, connecting to Christ, connecting to the Father through the work of Christ. That's what salvation means. That's eternal life. Knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, let's look at verse 4. Remember, we're just getting oriented. <clears throat> kind of laying out the furniture. laying out the, We're unpacking the luggage. And then we're going to put some clothes on here in a bit. All right? I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Okay? While he's asking for glory in verse 1, we looked at that a moment ago. Okay, glorify the Son so I can glorify you. Okay, while he's asking for it there, he points out here in verse 4, he's sort of reminding the Father of some glory already displayed. And he speaks of it as a work that's already been finished. Okay, that's kind of cool because he says this hour has come, and he's speaking about the completion of the hour because his cross is that sure and his faithfulness is that sure. He's speaking about it as already accomplished. And God glorify, God the Father glorify me now on earth because I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, it's not quite accomplished yet. It's actually accomplished when on the cross he says the words, the familiar words that we all remember. It is finished. That's when the work is officially done. But he speaks about it here as if it's already completed because it's that sure. All right, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is sort of the second request within these first five verses for glory, where he's asking the Father for the restoration of his pre-temporal, and another way to to explain that, his pre-creation glory. Lord, Father, give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We will talk about that more in a moment. Okay. All right, there's three places I want to go this morning. I think it's, it's, I realize it's a very light unpacking. I'm just trying to orient you to the map. I'm just trying to pull some luggage or some clothing out of the luggage. And now I want to put on three different outfits. Here's the first outfit Jesus prayed for glory. Okay? Jesus prayed for glory. That seems kind of obvious given the title of the sermon this morning, right? Okay, we know that. We're going to spend a few minutes on that. Jesus prayed for glory on the night of his arrest. On the eve of his cross, on the eve of the most shameful human experience, to be tried unjust trials, one right after another, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be stripped, likely completely naked, and nailed to a cross to die publicly before everyone. That's a picture of shame, and he's praying for glory in that hour, and he's praying for that out loud. I think for their benefit... And I think he's praying for that out loud for our benefit 2,000 years later. Thankfully, he prayed out loud and didn't keep this just between he and the Father. Now, let's talk about glory a little bit. I think we need to understand what he's asking for. You know, we sing songs that have glory in it. Um, we, uh, we talk about the glory of God. You hear, you hear it in a sermon. You say, okay, glory, you can kind of put it in this place. But really, do we un- really understand what glory is? I think it's important that we understand what he's asking for, and we also need to consider that he asked for it. Okay, so let's just first just talk glory a little bit. Glory is, I think, one of the most difficult things I've ever studied. I, I've thought about it. It's kind of like trying to define a color or describe a feeling. Have okay, you ever had to do that? You ever made an attempt at that, you kind of have to describe all the stuff around it, all the stuff that's relative, the color or the feeling, because it's really hard to describe that actual thing. Like, for the example, the, the color green. You, stri- you know, describe green as not blue and not yellow. <laughs> okay, that's helpful. 
You describe it as a mixture of blue and yellow. Okay, that's, that doesn't help very much either. You can describe it on the color spectrum between blue and yellow. You can describe it with some things that are green. Grass is green. You can say trees are green, ideally, if they're healthy. Frogs are green, right? Gumby is green. I mean, that's a, that's a given. Okay, all the details that have to do with green, you can sort of describe some things around, of the, the, around green, but none of them have really defined green itself. And that's sort of the way glory is. Just consider this. In this one prayer, here's what Jesus prays and asks for or references in regards to glory. Okay, let's just kind of follow it for a little bit. Okay, just kind of, just kind of let this little, little survey in the prayer hit you with these sort of relative things. And then we're going to get into, I think, what glory actually is. In verse 1, we looked at it already. Father, the hour is here. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. This thing that we can't describe, that we can't explain. He's asking for, I want some of it and I want to give it right back to you. In verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth by completing your work. Okay, we just looked at that. In verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the pre-temporal, the pre-creation glory. The glory that I had before the world existed. In verse 10, he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. I want to crack the code on what this stuff is, right? Do you? If he's praying this over them and he's praying this over us, I want to crack the code on this substance. Is it a substance? Is it a stuff? What is this glory stuff? It's all over the place here. In verse 22, the glory that you gave me, I have given them. This is in the section where he's praying over y'all. I want to know what this stuff is. Do you? Man, I'm going to, let's do the work of cracking the code. So I think a, a, a nice home base or a nice place to go. I love interpreting scripture with scripture. I think when you try and interpret Scripture uh, extra-biblically, then you can really make a mess of stuff. But when you go, there's a word for that. It's called analogy of faith. When you interpret Scripture with Scripture, you can really find some, some good, solid ground to stand on. So I, I only have a couple places for you to turn this morning, and this is the first of those two places. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. And I'm going to drink some vitamin water. Do you drink some coffee? Whatever you're going to need here, because this is about to get crazy. It's, it's going to get cool in Exodus chapter 33. I think you're going to see something really cool here. This, soaker, this, this joker is fro frozen. I'm bumming about it. It's hard to drink a frozen drink. Okay. Let me give you a little context for Exodus chapter 33. God has just delivered his people from Egypt. Okay, they've had the plagues. They've been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. They've, they've been delivered from Egypt through the plagues and the final plague of the Passover. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They've gone to Mount Sinai. Okay, and guess what happens right in front of, uh, right before chapter 33 of Exodus? Chapter 32 happens. And chapter 32 is crazy. Moses is up on the mountain, and the people of God are like, hey, man, where's Moses? Golly, he's taking forever up there. Aaron, can you make a God for us to worship while he's gone? Like, okay, sure, yeah, gather up all the rings and ear, uh, earrings and nose rings, and I guess that was a big deal then. Some of y'all wear nose rings. You can get, have good company, ancient company. You gather up all your bracelets and everything, and let's make a golden calf, and let's worship that thing. So that's what just happened before chapter 33. Okay, what's crazy about that is not only is it crazy that that happened, but God responds and says, okay, I'm out. I'm out. I'm not leading them to the promised land. I'll send an angel to go with y'all, but I'm not going with you to the promised land. I'll let you beat the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, but I'm not going with you. And man, Moses, thank the Lord for Moses. Moses, as a great mediator, as a great picture and foreshadow of Christ, he shows us what it looks like to intercede to God, appealing to his name, appealing to his character, and he says, if you're not going with us, basically he says, just leave us here. I don't want to go anywhere if you're not going with us, God. So that's where we sort of lead up to the chapter 33. It's in this passage, beginning in verse 17, that the Lord responds to Moses' intercession. Okay, listen, let's pick up in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. You did some good mediating there, Moses. 
I heard what you're saying. You're appealing to my character and appealing to my nature, appealing to my name, and I know you, Moses, by name. Okay, so I, 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 I'm going to go with you. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Okay? <laughs> you don't know what he's asking for. Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to crush you in that little spot there so you'll survive this revelation of glory. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This passage gives, I think, a window into how glory is often described as splendor, majesty, Holiness, this white-hot, consuming holiness. And I think that sort of revelation there gives a nice explanation for why Jesus is saying, give me the glory that I had before the world existed. Give me that pre-temporal, that pre-creation glory, because if you don't dial me back, Bethlehem's going to catch on fire. If you don't dial back my glory in some way, it's referenced in, in Philippians 2. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's turn that glory meter back to where Bethlehem doesn't explode. Man, I love that picture of glory, don't you? Let's stuff you in the cleft of this rock so it doesn't consume you. I'm going to give you what you've asked for, and I'm going to reveal my glory. I think that might be getting at what Jesus was getting at in verse 5. So let me just, just think about this. Is that all glory is? It's just kind of this shiny thing that's hard to, to survive? Is that what we're singing about every single week when we say, to God be the glory, 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 glory? Is that what we're singing about, this brilliance, this so white hot, this holiness that it just burn us up? Man, I think it's that, but I think it's a whole lot more. And this passage shows us so much more than that. I want to sort of dial back this passage just a few verses. I want you to look back with me in verses 12 and 13. This is what happened right. This is where Moses is interceding. Man, I want y'all to stick with me here. This is where Moses is interceding. You're going to see something really cool here. All right, in verses 12 and 13, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know who, will, who you will send with me. God has just told him, I'm not going with you in the promised land. And this is where Moses starts to intercede. He says, uh, bring up this people, but you, will, you, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. See, man, he's a great intercessor. And then in verse 13, he says, now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I mean, how many verses is separate from that's in verse 13, and then in verse 18, please show me your glory. See, here's what's cool, people of God. He's asking, Lord, show me your ways. And then later he's saying, show me your glory, because I don't think that question is different at all. That request is the same request. Please show me your ways. And look at what God responds when God says, okay, I'm going to go with you. I hear you, and I'm going to do what you've asked of me. In verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. Remember, keep... Keep with you. Please show me your ways. And here's what God says. Okay, I will make my goodness pass before you. It's not just about some shiny stuff. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, my character, my being, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Man, here's what's so cool, I think, about this passage to give us a window into this thing called glory. What in the world it is. I think if I were to try and define it in terms so I could get my head around it, what these have in common, all these things, this brilliance, the splendor, the majesty, his ways, his name, his goodness, his graciousness, and his mercy. I think what they have to do 
together and how they synthesize together is these are the ways that God is revealed. These are the ways that the ways of God are revealed. That's what glory is. Glory is the revelation of God's ways. That's what we're singing about each week when we sing glory and we ask for glory. We're asking, Lord, put your ways on display. Put your nature on display. Put your name on display. Put your goodness on display. See what the passage said? Put pass by with your goodness. Pass by with your graciousness. Pass by with your mercy so that we may see all those things that you are. Your holiness, your justice, your wisdom. Glory is the revelation of God. So when you take verse 1 and verse 5, if Jesus is praying for it, here's where I want to go with this first point. All right, and I'm gauging the sermon, too. I know how people gauge the sermon. Okay, that's just the first point. We've done a lot of work for the first point. The second and third are go, go quicker. But don't miss this. Here's the first point. If Jesus prays for glory, if he prays that God's ways would be displayed, if he prays that God's name would be displayed, and revealed, if he prays that, that his goodness and his mercy and his grace would pass by so that all would see, how in the world do you expect to reflect the glory of God apart from prayer? Man, this floored me. The simplicity of this just floored me. Just think about this. It struck me. God the Son prayed to God the Father for glory. God the Son prayed to God the Father for glory. And he did it out loud. So that they could hear it and so that we could hear it. He prayed for glory. It doesn't seem like he'd have to ask, right? I mean, just think about that. Why would he even have to ask? He's God the Son, but he asks for it nonetheless. It doesn't seem like he should have to. Have to. Just in being who he is, it seems like it would just happen. But he prays out loud and he prays specifically and he prays surgically for glory. If God the Son has to ask for glory, then how could we as his people expect the glory of God to be on display? His ways, his name, his character, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his holiness, his wisdom to be displayed apart from prayer. I have listened to in... in 16 years here, I've listened to, I think, two Alistair Begg sermons. I don't listen to a lot of other people's sermons because it scares me to death I'm going to rip anybody off. I want a fresh word here every week. But I've heard a couple of Alistair Begg sermons. Both of them stuck in my mind They're for different reasons. One stuck in my mind. It was on prayer, and he said, the devil must laugh at prayerless preaching. He said it was a Scottish accent. I wish I could mock it or copy it. I wouldn't mock it. I love the Scottish. I believe God's going to speak with a Scottish accent. The devil must laugh at prayerless preaching. Man, I think we could add to that. The devil must laugh at prayerless missions. The devil must laugh at prayerless children's ministry, at prayerless worship ministry, at prayerless youth ministry, the prayerless shepherding. The devil must laugh at prayerless eldering. The devil must laugh at prayerless deaconing. If Jesus has to ask for it, how in the wide world of sports could we think we could get by without it? Without asking. God the Son asks for it, prays for it. If he does that, then his people should be asking for it and praying for it. Every time we gather, put your name, your ways, your goodness, your grace, your mercy, all those things on display. Oh, and your splendor and your brilliance and your majesty. Put them all on display. Jesus prayed for God's glory, so should we. My appeal and my encouragement to you people of God is be part of an intentional prayer group. I don't care what it is. Life transformation groups, some of y'all are part of these small groups of people that meet together and pray every week. We're part of this time where we pray together corporately. You need to be part of a time in a life group where you're praying together, like intentionally. You're praying for one another. You're praying that God's glory will be on display. His name, his ways, his goodness his mercy, his graciousness will be on display. How can you possibly expect to, to experience those things apart from prayer? Be part of a life transformation group. Be part of a life group. Be part of a Bible study that meets weekly. Be part of something that's praying intentionally weekly. I invite you on Wednesday mornings for men. If you're not part of something like that, you can join us at 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. We pray. We pray for y'all. We pray for each other. We pray for the nations. We pray for his glory.
It's not standing room only either. I'm throwing it out there, men. 6.30 on Wednesday mornings. If you're not part of something, let's, be, let's, let's make it part of something. It matters. It'll bless you to see the glory of God displayed. All right. Here's the second thing that comes out of this. This is my favorite thing of the morning. I, I mean, I enjoy the prayer thing. <laughs> That's rich. Let me, just encourage, let me just show you in this passage. You can go back to John chapter 17. You can have this in front of you. Um, this whole chapter has a theme of giving in it. There's a theme of giving. Yeah, go back to that one. Thank you. A theme of giving in this whole chapter. Okay? There's giving or some version of give, giving or whatever is in there 17 times in this one prayer. Okay, 13 of those times have to do with the father giving the son something, giving him authority, giving him work, giving him glory, giving him followers, giving him words. Okay, and the other four deal with the son giving his followers something, eternal life, the father's words, the father's glory. Okay, just in verse 2, we've already looked at this already, but you may have not have noticed the giving thing. Just in verse 2, there's authority given to the son. And eternal life then is given by the Son to those that have been given to Him. And then in verse 4, work is given to the Son. Remember that glorifying work? Man, it's a gift exchange. The whole chapter is like a big gift exchange. When I was growing up, the gift exchange at the McGraw house, we'd come downstairs. I mean, I stayed up almost all night long. I couldn't wait to get up. I mean, I was up. And I was walking around the room, pacing the room from like 2 or 3 in the morning, waiting for 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. or whatever time we agreed that we could come down the stairs. Okay, and like half of the presents weren't wrapped. Half of the presents came from Santa, and that's, that's the ones that came from Santa, the ones that weren't wrapped. And the other half that were wrapped, we'd sit down, and this is the way the McGraws did Christmas morning. There's like a, a, a cloud, almost like confetti. It probably looked like, uh, like New York, you know, when, the, when, the, when the, the year changes, the new year where confetti's coming out of the windows everywhere. That's, that's wrapping paper. We're all opening our presents. And then you just kind of sit there in the aftermath and you're like, oh, what'd you get? Oh, I got these. I got this. Yeah, you kind of show, show everybody what you got. Everybody does it different though, right? I married into a family that does it very different than that. All right. I married into a family that's got the presents all under the tree. Santa wrapped everything. Okay, under the tree. And everybody's name. And, and, and one person was in charge of going and getting a present for everyone. Okay. And then you open that present one at a time. And everybody would ooh and ah over each person's present, right? There's some people in here do that. I can tell. You're like, no, nah. I'm like, that's the right way to do it. <laughs> the Bible says so, right? I get it. I get it. But you know, there's something cool and funny about that. that I, I like that plan, actually. I mean, I really enjoyed the plan that I was on to growing up. I didn't know anything any different. And, and I, I can't even remember how, I guess it depends on whose parents we're with or whose family we're with, uh, how we do it now. But I like the plan where you do it kind of one at a time because you get to enjoy one another's gifts. And what's kind of cool about that is without fail, every Christmas morning, there's a present or two that's sort of a surprise. You're like, I didn't know that that, that that person was giving that person that. And that's so cool. It's so fitting. I love that. That's, and everybody's like especially excited about that one gift. Okay, there's one of those in here. This gift exchange in chapter 17, there's one of those gifts in here that if you really look at it, you got to go, wow, that's kind of cool but kind of crazy too. I didn't expect that gift to be given. And that gift is in verse 2. I read it. and Let me draw your attention to it. Father, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify you since you've given the Son authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. That's the surprise gift. To all whom you have given Him. And this gift exchange, this ancient gift exchange, this heavenly gift exchange, the Father has given the Son a people. A people. He talks about it all over the place, too. In John chapter 6, just listen to this passage. Maybe this will kind of give you a little window. In John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will, will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This gift, he's speaking of people. All the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing or no one of all that he's given me, but raise it and raise them up on the last day. Man, Jesus talks about this gift that's given to him all over the place. In this chapter 17 prayer, it shows up in other places. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. This is the gift where everybody goes, wow. I didn't see that one coming. It shows up again over there in verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but God coming. And I'll explain why in a moment. But man, let me tell you, this story of the Bible has always been about God saving a people. This special gift. Noah and family. Abraham and family, Isaac and family, Jacob and family. This is the gift, this, this people that have been gathered. The nation of Israel saved and drawn from Egypt, ripped from Egypt. This is, that's the gift. The remnant drawn from a faithful or a faithless Israel. And in the end, the people who are his that are drawn from the world. Revelation chapter 18, 4 says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my gift. It's always been about a people. The surprise one is the gift that the Father gave to the Son of a people. I want you to consider this, that those sitting around the table in chapter 11, or the, the 11 in, in the, the Lord's Supper here in verse 17, verse 13 through 17, those 11 that are sitting there, and those who would believe through their ministry, that's you. We together make up the gift that was given to the Son. I don't like prompted stuff in a sermon. I, anytime I go to a church and somebody tries to prompt me to do something, I'm like so uncomfortable because I guess I'm just headstrong. I want to do stuff on my own, but I'm going to ask you all to do something. It's not hard. It's not hard. I want you to just look around you. Okay? Y'all over here, you already face that way. Look over here. And y'all look this way. Okay? And y'all here and here can kind of look to the wings. And the wings can look over here, y'all. Let's just kind of gawk at one another for a minute. And y'all, if you're like really adventurous, you can turn around and look at the person behind you. <laughs> I see you, yeah. Look around. Now, here's, here's where I'm going with this. Here's why this is such a surprise gift. I think as we look around at one another, we realize that this gift exchange really feels a little bit like a white elephant gift exchange. <laughs> That's the surprise I'm talking about. Go ahead and put that, put that picture Okay, this, this was a real white elephant gift that, that I got at a, a white elephant party. It's probably 12 years ago. I don't have the gift anymore, but I so wish I did, like physically. <laughs> but I took a picture, thankfully. All right, it was at the Wades or the Tarpleys or something. We had a white elephant gift exchange, and I ended up with this thing. It's like a baby's face. It's just hollow. It's just the front of the baby's face. It's like a doll had the face cut off or something, and then this thing knit around it. Like it was really pretty special to somebody at some point. But man... This was terrible. I was hoping that I'd be the last guy, you know, that last person that gets to rob from anybody else. But, man, I was stuck with this thing. I was stuck with it. And it's terrible, right? But, man, you know we do that with each other sometimes, probably often, where we go, man, I sure wish I was the last guy and I could trade these people for somebody else. I could trade this person for somebody else. Man, how we deal with one another is often like looking at each other like we're white elephant gift exchange. And I get it. Here's how we value one another. I was thinking about how do I value people typically? Left to my natural device. How do y'all do this? How do I do it? How do, how do we do this? We tend to value people that make us feel good. We tend to value people that give us something, that we can get something from that help us. We value people that make us laugh. We, people, we value those who agree with us. We value those that are easy to be around. We value those that have shared interests. Okay, this is very natural. We value those that, that are very giving. You know, We value those that are, are, are uh, wise or those that, that leave us feeling refreshed. 
right? That's how we place value. And that's a very natural thing. It doesn't mean you're broken if that's the way you value people naturally. Okay, the flip side of that is the way we devalue something is, man, you just don't act right. Your value's less because you just don't act right in, 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 in regards to me or in regards to someone else. So I'm going to devalue you. Here's the point that I want to make with this. We are, those may be natural things for us, but here's what's different and unique for the people of God. We are not compelled and driven by the natural. We are not to be compelled and driven by the natural, but first and foremost, first and foremost by what is ultimately and absolutely true. And what is ultimately and absolutely true is that you and me, those around us, all that you just looked at right now, are the gift that the Father gave to the Son in ages past. You're the gift that the Father gave to the Son. You are the gift that the Father and Son cherish. You are the gift. One another that were so valuable that the Son even died for you. That's how we place value on one another, first and foremost. If you walk with a church long enough, you're going to have some history with folks. Right? Any new believers in here? Anybody new to the faith? I'm just giving you a heads up. If you walk with a church long enough, you're going to have some history with folks. You have some wounds. You have some baggage. You're going to have some opinions about one another. You're going to have some suppositions about one another. You're going to have some suspicions about one another. You're going to have all these things that are very natural as you walk with a church. I don't know of a church that's free of those things, except for maybe a church plant that's like a week old. You know what I'm saying? You want to try and find a church that doesn't have any of those things? Once you get there, you're going to bring it. If it actually didn't, when it didn't. I'm telling you, this is part and parcel to being the people of God. I want you to consider just for a moment the table that Jesus is praying over. I'm thinking about this, these 11, they're sitting around the table. Beth, the Enneagram coach, would have had a field day with this table, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, the Enneagrams? Man, you got Peter. I mean, everybody knows what Peter's going to be, right? He's the number one, man, making everybody mad. He's rash, you know. Open his pie hole, not thinking, thinking afterward. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> He's a number one. You got uh, Thomas. Y'all know what Thomas is. He's a, a, a number six. He's suspicious of everybody, <laughs> doubting everybody. Man, we got a table of real people right here. Real people. You got ordinary Phil. I asked Christy this morning who she thought Phil would be. Phil's probably a nine. Ordinary Phil's just a nine. He's just kind of there, you know, easy to get along with. Judas, I'm going to give him a zero. He's off the scale. <laughs> All right, he gets a zero. But I, I want you to realize that these guys had just argued. You may not have considered this. At this table, what also happened at this table, I gave you a view of what happened at this table. What also happened at this table is a bunch of guys argued about who would be greatest in the kingdom. You want to tell me they didn't have some baggage? <laughs> but you know what Jesus is doing with them? He's praying over them. Saying, you are the gift that was given me by the Father. Ugh. You think they didn't have history? Boy, I bet they did. And Jesus prays over them, identifying them as the gift given him by the Father. Out loud. Thank you for praying out loud, Lord. My brothers and my sisters and my friends, this should change how you view one another. This should inform how you view one another. Whatever baggage or history or angst you might have with one another, you are a daughter and son of the high king of heaven. You were bought and won. That is your value. That must be your driving view of one another. That's where relentless love comes for one another. Not when people just acted right. That's how you can love when people aren't acting right. That's where 70 times 7 forgiveness comes from. Right? That's where the resources come from. Man, this person's value is that they were the gift given to the Son by the Father. Man, that's where and how the glory of God will be manifest among a people. Revealing the ways and the nature and the character of a God who's treated us the way I'm calling y'all to treat one another. As though we often don't act like it, we're treated like we're His.
Man, that's good. That's good medicine. All right, the last thing is going to lead us into our supper. There's glory and mission accomplishment. Here's the third thing. There's glory and mission accomplishment. All right, you remember the verse 4 that I read there? I'm going to go back to that verse. If you don't have it in front of you, go back and get it in front of you. I want you to see that we're not making this up. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In verse 5, he asks for his pre-temporal glory to be restored. But here in verse 4, he points out there's glory in mission accomplishment. There's glory in doing my work. And, he, and, and putting, putting the pronouns where they should be. There's glory in doing the Father's work is what the Son is saying here. And I've glorified you, Father, in doing the work that you gave me to do. Now, here's something that's interesting. If you think about it, verse 3 says he was sent by the Father. And this occurred to me as I was thinking about this, that God is a sending God in the person of the Father, and he's a sent God in the person of the Son. He is a sending God, and he is a sent God. And here's where this thing, I think, dovetails and intersects with these last couple of Sundays. We have a sending God who is a sent God, and that should reflect who we are as a people. Jesus was sent to do the Father's work, and his hour has come, and he's going to fulfill it. He's going to complete it. Mission accomplishment. What's going on here between Father and Son, really, if you want to kind of envision it, it's a chore list with one big chore. How many fathers leave chore lists for their sons? I do. How many sons have had chore lists from their dad? You know what I'm talking about? It's like... Miles long on Saturday. I know what I'm going to be doing all day Saturday. This chore list has one thing on it. And what's on this chore list is a covenant of redemption. Jesus is sent to go get the lost sheep given to him by the Father. That's us. Remember the white elephants that really aren't white elephants? Okay, that's on the chore list. That's it. Go get the lost sheep given him by the Father. This gifted people, those given to the Son by the Father. And the way you're going to have to get them is you're going to have to work. You're going to have to take on flesh and climb into our problem. That's what he did. He then had to order, in in order to redeem us, had to live the life that we couldn't live because we didn't have the righteousness. We were enslaved to sin. And he had to die the death that we were due so that his righteousness could be counted and reckoned as ours. And lastly, he had to defeat our shared enemy, death, and leave a sealed tomb, unsealed and vacant. He had work to do and he was glorified in the doing. He gave us this very same work to do, to live otherworldly lives, to climb in other people's problems in their flesh, to live otherworldly lives where we're going to be spending the fall and the, and, and the winter in Matthew chapter 5. You want to know what the, those otherworldly lives look like? You can read ahead the Sermon on the Mount. And he sent us as stewards of the glory of God, taking his glory, his ways, his character, his name, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his holiness to those who don't know him. And let me tell you something, people. You need to get this. There's glory in doing his work. We were made for it. People sometimes want to associate work with a product of the fall. The one step forward, two steps back nature of a lot of work, that's the product of the fall. But work itself is not a product of the fall. Adam was made for work. People of God, we're made for work. And in Christ, and through union with Christ, we can put our hand to work that's actually eternal. We can put our hand to work that is God-glorifying, that is revealing His name and His goodness and His character in everything that we do. Man, that is a profound work. Let me just leave you with this thought, people of God. An idle church isn't a God-glorifying church. An idle family that claims the name of Christ is not a God-glorifying family. An idle Christian that claims the name of Christ that's, that's not walking out the glory of God, that's not doing the work of the Father in any way, is not bringing glory to the Father in any way. A church that's not about His work is not fulfilling the prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And people of God, this is who we're to be. We don't go just because. We go because he's a sending God and a sent God. And he's a working God with one chore, to gather the gift given to the Son by the Father. If we're to glorify him, then we reveal his ways in doing the same, in the sending, in the going, and in the redeeming, drawing those who've been given him by the Father through the, preach, the preached and the taught word. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this prayer. It is potent. I'm thankful that 
Jesus prayed out loud. I'm thankful that he prayed out loud so that we could see what you are calling us to be and how you're calling us to move and how you're calling us to walk out the fulfillment of this prayer. Lord, I'm thankful for what he prayed. I'm thankful that it has real purchase in today, that we can actually walk out these things in connection with people that we're sitting next to. Lord, I pray that we would walk out these things that are put, have been put right in front of us with those that we work with and those that we live nearby. That as you are a sending God and a sent God, that we would be a sending and sent people. Lord, we are asking for these things for your glory, for your name, for your goodness, for your grace, and your mercy to be on display. We pray in these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.